This is a graph of the global temperature for the last 120 years. And you can see it was cold at the end of the 20th, 19th century. It warmed. It was sort of flat, and it's warmed a lot in the last 30 years. How can we explain this? The first part of the warming, a lot of it was natural. It was because the uh, volcanic eruptions that were a lot of them at the end of the 19th century stopped, and the planet warmed up. After World War II, there were tropospheric aerosols in the atmosphere with rapid industrialization, and it blocked out some of the sun, and there was less warming. But for the last 30 years, greenhouse gases have dominated. So this is the way I begin my global warming talk. But what this teaches us is that if nature puts particles into the stratosphere, it will cool the climate. If humans put particles into the troposphere, the lower part of the atmosphere will cool the climate. So part of the story of past climate change is not just greenhouse gases, but it's the blocking out of sunlight cooling the planet. And this gave people ideas, well, maybe we can do that on purpose to try and help solve the problem of global warming. And two years ago, two very prominent scientists, Paul Crimson, who has a Nobel Prize in chemistry, atmospheric chemistry, and Tom Whitley from the National Center for Atmospheric Research, published papers suggesting that humans do that. They didn't say this will solve the problem of global warming. They said this might be a temporary solution in order to uh, give us time to figure out how to solve the problem. They said in case there's a planetary emergency, what we might want to do that. And this started a lot of people talking about it, but it's, it's an old story. People have suggested it for decades. The Russians, Badika, suggested it in the 1970s. And, but now people are, are talking about it more. And in fact, uh, two years ago, I went to a meeting at the NASA lab in California. And that week, the Rolling Stone came out. And two of my favorite people, but Dr. Evil's plan to stop global warming. And if you look inside, there's an article about Lowell Wood, who was Edward Teller's right-hand man at Livermore. And he has a plan. Says, Can Dr. Evil save the world? Forget about a future filled with wind farms and hydrogen cars. Pennington's top weaponeer says he has a radical solution to stop global warming no matter how much oil we burn. So this is an indication of people who think that this is going to solve the problem. We don't have to worry about continuing burning CO2, putting CO2 in the atmosphere. So what do we mean by, global, by geoengineering? There are different suggestions. Uh, what causes climate change? Global warming. The gases we put in the atmosphere, the greenhouse gases, cause warming. And so one idea is to take them out of the atmosphere. And that's what uh, Dale's going to talk about next, capturing the CO2, pumping it underground, or under the ocean, or uh, another idea, dumping iron in the ocean, which will fertilize it and take CO2 out. I'm not going to talk about those. That's carbon capture and sequestration. Another idea is to put particles in the stratosphere to block out the sunlight, just like volcanoes do, and to cool the planet. Or giant reflectors in orbit. I'm not going to talk about that. That's a pretty wild idea. I'm going to talk mainly about, about this one. At this meeting two years ago, people were talking about global warming, uh, geoengineering, and I started writing down reasons why maybe this isn't such a good idea. And I wrote, that's not a good idea, that's not a good idea. I wrote, kept to 20 reasons, and I published a paper this year about that. And so what I want to do is go through these 20 reasons and see if today uh, we still think that they're uh, 
valid. So the first one is, is uh, about the climate change. So there, was a, there are two ideas. Uh, we know that volcanic eruptions cool the planet for a couple years by putting SO2, sulfur dioxide gas, into the stratosphere. It reacts with water to form sulfuric acid clouds, and they block out the sun until it gradually falls. If you put it in the tropics, like Mount Pinatubo did, the atmospheric circulation blows it poleward and it comes out, and it lasts for a couple years in the stratosphere. If you put particles in the troposphere where we live, it comes out after a week because of weather. So the idea is to put it up in the stratosphere. Another idea is, well, let's just put it in the Arctic. Stop Greenland from melting. We'll stop sea ice from save the polar bears. And uh, there aren't many people there, so if there are bad effects, it won't affect them. So we did some climate model simulations. This is a cartoon from the New York Times a year ago, uh, polar bears pumping sulfur into the stratosphere. And I'm not going to go through the details, but the meteorologists here uh, understand what this slide means. We, we took a modern climate model that's been used for global warming calculations, uh, one built by NASA, we put part, and we've used for volcano simulations. We put particles in the stratosphere, and we saw how the climate would change. And we did an Arctic scenario and two tropical scenarios. We put in, in the tropics, five megatons of SO2 per year. That's like one Pinatubo eruption every four years. Uh, 10 megatons per year is one Pinatubo eruption every two years. All these papers are on my website. If you want to just type my name into Google, you can download them. You can find it very easily. And this is what we got. Uh, this is the graph I showed you before of global warming, uh, more warming in the first part of the 20th century than the last part of the 20th century. If at this point, uh, one, one calculation we did was business as usual, continuing putting greenhouse gases in, and that's the red line, continued global warming. The blue one is if we put three megatons of sulfur into the Arctic stratosphere, and it comes out more quickly, and it causes a little bit of cooling, but then warming continues. If we put one Pinatubo every, five, every four years into the tropics, you get to the black line. It cools it off here, and we did it for 20 years, and then we stopped and ran the model for another 20 years. If we do one Pinatubo every two years, we can cool it down this much, and it warms up. If you do one Pinatubo once, it cools off, but then the planet doesn't cool very much, and then it warms up as the aerosols fall out. But if you continuously put it in, the oceans have time to cool. This brings up a few questions. If we could do this, what temperature do we want the Earth to be? Do we want it to be constant at the current temperature? Do we want it to go back to what it was in pre-industrial times, maybe back to 1980 levels? And who decides? Whose hand is on the thermostat? What if Russia still wants it a couple degrees warmer and India wants it a couple degrees colder? What if you started doing this and then it stopped suddenly because society lost the will to do it or the technology broke? Then you'd get rapid global warming, much more rapid than we're getting now. And it's the rate of change that's really disruptive to society in addition to the absolute values. We also calculate how precipitation would change. I know this is kind of hard for you to see, but the brown areas are where precipitation would be reduced. And we found this for the Arctic and for the tropical scenarios. In the summertime, you cool the land more than the ocean, and this land temperature contrast drives the Asian summer monsoon. And so you get weaker circulation, less rain, less clouds, and you get less rain in particular over India and China, places where a couple billion people depend on it for their survival. 
Now, occasionally there are bad monsoons, but the next year it's okay. But if you did this continuously, it might be a continuous threat to agriculture there. We also calculated how ice would change. And if you, this is, uh, these are graphs showing for the Arctic and the tropical scenario, you get increase of sea ice in the Arctic. This is a zeros, this is the change in sea ice. The red line shows continual melting of Arctic sea ice. If you do geoengineering, you increase the sea ice, and you can keep it there until you stop putting the aerosols in, and then it rapidly melts as the sun starts to shine again. So this is a summary of the climate response. If there was a way to continuously inject sulfur dioxide or H2S, some sulfur gas in the stratosphere, it would produce global cooling. The tropical one would produce sustained cooling over most of the world with more cooling over the continents. The Arctic one would also cool the continents because the, the particles you put in would leak down to about 30 degrees north and it would cool the northern hemisphere. Uh, solar radiation reduction reduces produces a larger precipitation response than the temperature that it's, the, than the effect of the greenhouse gases. I didn't really discuss that, but if you block out the sunlight, it reduces precipitation more than if you put greenhouse gases in and, and increase precipitation. So you get global drying. And, but both of them would disrupt the Asian and African summer monsoons, reducing the precipitation supply, the food supply, to billions of people. People who have proposed this suggest that volcanic eruptions are an innocuous example of shows that we could do this. But if we look at the last big volcanic eruption, Mount Pinatubo in 1991, this is a paper by uh, Kevin Trenberth and Igor, and they showed that this is eight, 1986, 1998. This is global precipitation. After the eruption, it went down, and this is global uh, River, river flow, after, the, after it went down, the river's uh, flow was less. And the red is all the areas of drought in the year after the Pinatubo eruption. So the Pinatubo eruption shows a natural example that validates the models. You really do get a reduction of precipitation after putting aerosols in the stratosphere. Another calculation was done about ozone depletion. We get ozone depletion now. Uh, it's enhanced when there are, are clouds in the stratosphere, and the chlorine gas that we've put up there is released and destroys ozone. Normally, we get an ozone hole around Antarctica every spring. But if you put particles in, if humans did it, it doesn't have to get cold enough to form a cloud on its own. You get ozone depletion everywhere. And this is a calculation showing that without geoengineering, with geoengineering, you get a much bigger and longer-lasting ozone hole. It'll take more decades to go away in the southern hemisphere. In the northern hemisphere, you also get ozone holes uh, in cold years. So let's go back to my list. Let's go over the list now. Uh, yes, you would get regional climate change and clean temperature and precipitation effects. If you can do geoengineering and continue to put CO2 in the atmosphere, some of it comes out into the ocean, continues to acidify the ocean, doesn't solve that problem, and it, and it dissolves corals. So that's a big concern of the CO2 in addition to its climate effects. You would get enhanced ozone depletion. If you put this cloud in the stratosphere, you block out the sun, the sun becomes dimmer, but you get a lot of uh, indirect radiation. It looks like there's a thin cloud up there, a white cloud. So you get a white sky, but nice red sunsets. Uh, but it would change the distribution of direct and diffuse radiation, which might have important impacts on biology 
Nobody's done much research on that yet. We don't know how important that would be. I calculated how much additional acid rain, acid snow you'd get when this sulfur came out. And it turns out it's not very much compared to what humans do and already in the troposphere. It's even not very much in pristine areas. So it turns out that's really not a concern. It might affect clouds, cirrus clouds, and nobody's done any research on that and changed the circulation. One of the solutions for global warming is to use solar radiation. And one of the ways is to use direct solar radiation and focus it on a place that would boil water and make, and make uh, electricity. And Mike McCracken, who's here, pointed out that, that, that it would uh, reduce direct solar radiation a tremendous amount, and systems designed to do that might stop functioning because they wouldn't get the, uh, enough uh, solar radiation to even to boil the water. There are other direct solar radiation uh, systems that use photovoltaics with focused energy, and that would go down also. So it might sort of cut out one of the solutions. The rapid warming when it stops, I mentioned that. Uh, what if we discovered a bad effect and we wanted to stop it? Or what if there was a series of volcanic eruptions? Uh, we, can't, we can't, once we put it in there, we can't take it out. It would take a year or two or three for it all to come out. So it's not something you can turn on and off. And imagine you actually have a system to inject it. Airplanes, artillery, balloons. Locally, there would be a huge environmental uh, effect. We don't know how large it would be globally. Locally, it would be a large effect. And then I've got nine uh, other reasons to make up to 20. And these are less sort of scientific-y. They're more uh, policy things. Uh, first of all is unknowns. Uh, people make mistakes in any technical thing we do. And so we don't know uh, what might go wrong. Uh, and there are unexpected consequences. Uh, we, I used the, one of the best climate models that exists, but it's not perfect, and so we might not be perfectly predicting what the effects are. There might be surprises, things we don't know about that might make it worse. It might be less bad, but we, we just don't know. Uh, and then there's these ethical issues. 14 is the one I'm really with. What if people think that we're solving the problem? It will lessen the push to actually do mitigation, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, to use energy more efficiently, to develop renewable sources. And that's one of the reasons uh, Lowell Wood's position is, is kind of scary to me. And the American Enterprise Institute here in Washington is a proponent of geoengineering now because it will help solve, somebody else will solve the problem created by CO2 putting into the atmosphere. And so if we're going to talk about it, it has to be sold as a, or uh, explained as an as a emergency temporary measure. So substitute. The Russians developed this and talked about it, did research on this uh, to use it for military purposes. And you can imagine if you could control their climate, something that could be used for military purposes. But I, I put a question mark. I don't know how serious a concern that is. Or commercial control. If there are big companies running this, and uh, they would do things in their interest, not in society's interest. There's also a... a treaty that the U.S. has signed. It's called the, it's a very long name, the UN Convention on the Prohibition of Military or Any Other Hostile Use of Environmental Modification Techniques. It's not clear whether geoengineering would violate this treaty, but part of the treaty says that any signatory to it, which includes the U.S. and is damaged by it, then uh, you're pro prohibited from doing it. So even if it helped the planet as a whole, but it reduced the precipitation in India, 
and affected them, it might be a, a, a problem. Uh, another re Excuse me? Would you be liable for costs? Well, let me finish and then I can answer questions. Uh, it could be tremendously expensive. I wrote that down and, and, and taking into that further and redefining what I mean by tremendously expensive after the U.S. spent $700 billion to solve this recent problem. Uh, on that scale or on the scale of, uh, it would probably be tens of billions of dollars a year and you can decide for yourself whether that's expensive or not, but probably compared it's not. Uh, and then, as I said, even if it works, whose hand will be on the thermostat? And then who has the moral right to advertently modify the climate? We're modifying the climate now not because we're trying to change the climate. We're trying to uh, turn on our lights and drive and cook our food and things like that, and it's a side effect. But do we really have the right to change the climate? And, and whose interest do we have to take into account? Is it just humans? Is it species? Is it the whole planet? How do you, the ecology, how do you decide? So I just wanted to say a couple last things. Uh, if we wanted to do geoengineering today, it's impossible. We have no means to put the sulfur up there. People have suggested various techniques. Uh, artillery, you could take 50-year-old naval guns and shoot it up there and explode it. Uh, but those guns don't exist. You have to build them. Uh, aircraft. Aircraft, uh, big aircraft, you know, the, this stink because they're building a new fleet of tankers to fuel the military. So all these planes with big tanks in them, maybe you fly them up there, put the SO2 in and release it. it turns out the tankers can't get into the stratosphere in the tropics. Maybe they could barely make it into the stratosphere in the Arctic. So there are no airplanes that could actually fly up there and do it right now. You could imagine building a new fleet of humans, but they don't exist. That with airplanes, you got this nice acid cloud up there that additional airplanes would be flying into this acid cloud. It might be not very good for them. You could uh, use balloons. We know how to get weather balloons up there. We do it every day with instruments. So I can how many weather balloons you would if you filled them with hydrogen and H2S. And it would be billions of them per year. And uh, then all this plastic would be raining down on you. Uh, there are other ideas of having one balloon with a hose and pumping it up there, but that's, that's sort of a, something on a piece of paper. It's never been done. Or the space elevator. You put a geostationary satellite over the equator and it rotates with the Earth and you just run a line. idea, But that, that would be very expensive and has never been done. So there is no current way, there's no means to inject these gases which form the cloud. Even if there were, though, we don't know how to form, what kind of nozzles to use, how to form particles that are the right size that would last long enough. We have the experiment of volcanic eruption. I was Richard Turco to try and figure out the microphysics of the gases converting to particles and how that would work and what size you would get and how long they would last. I thought I would also just tell you what, if, that's, if this is not the way to solve the problem of climate change, what what is, is mitigation. That means we have to put less CO2 in the atmosphere. And so we have to develop alternative sources of energy. And if we burn coal, we have to pump the coal, the CO2, back underground. And I've had this slide for a while in explaining why mitigation is the answer. It reduces ocean acidification. It reduces our dependence on foreign sources of energy. It stops subsidizing terrorism with our gas dollars. It reduces our military budget, freeing resources for other uses. 
cleans up the air and provides economic opportunities for a green economy. Solar wind, cellulosic ethanol, energy efficiency, other technologies can sell around the world. It it's boggles my mind that the president-elect says saying the same things right now, and even, even his opponent did, but a year or two ago, people weren't saying that, so, so people do understand this now. So the conclusions are, as of now, there are at least 13 reasons why geoengineering is a bad idea. But there still may be pressures to attempt to do it in terms of a planetary emergency as a stopgap measure while we implement mitigation and carbon sequestration. As far as I know, I'm the only one who has a reason to study geoengineering. Uh, there is no national program to do it. The Department of Energy wrote a white paper in 2001 laying out a national geoengineering research program, but it was never released by the on a support program to solve a problem they claimed didn't exist. Uh, but uh, now is time for a, uh, a geoengineering research program to try and figure out how to do it, how much it would cost, the benefits, and what would be the consequences. Maybe for 10 years and, and send food to, to supplement the diets of people in India and China. Maybe that would be the, the decision society could make. But we, in order to make those policy decisions, we need the information. And only a few people are working on this now. And people have suggested, let's do small-scale tests. You can't do that with stratospheric geoengineering. You put a little bit of sulfur in, you, you could test the nozzles and things, but you couldn't tell what the climate response would be because there's weather. There's a lot of interannual variability, and you couldn't tell whether the, it was effective. Uh, I'm sure all of you know about the Kasatochi volcanic eruption, right? It was the biggest eruption since Mount Pinatubo. It took place in August this year. It put 1.5 teragrams of sulfur in the stratosphere. We're doing a simulation now to calculate its climate effects, and I'm, I'm guessing we'll, we probably won't be able to see it. It'll be a very marginal effect compared to the natural variability. So you have to do it, put a lot in there continuously, and you're essentially doing geoengineering already. So you can do a lot of theoretical calculations, but you can't really do it in the real world. So the bottom line is, is these are some concerns. A lot more work has to be done to work out the details of the technology and the possible good and bad effects, and we need more money to do research on it. Thanks. Yes, I think I'm all set, and uh, thank you very much uh, for inviting me. Uh, I'm supposed to be on holidays today, seeing my brother up in Penn State. Instead, I chose to spend this morning here before I drive up to Penn State this afternoon to see him, because I thought it was important to try to hear what I would call an objective view of uh, clean coal, which is hard to get, especially here in Washington. We'll talk about uh, this confusion on what clean coal means, uh, and then I'll talk about technologies associated with CO2 capture and storage, because I'm under the assumption that's what the definition here of clean coal is, is relative to CO2 mitigation. And I'll have a bit of slides as a storyboard about, but if I do a good job, you'll want to look at the slides. So I'll may, mainly concentrate on just things in yellow in these slides and go rather quickly through 32 slides to, uh, to be done in, in 20 minutes. In fact, uh, get my watch out so I know when to end. And the first thing, oops, is uh, in a is where I'm coming from. And the way to think about me is uh, look at me as a big 
uh, white uh, lab rat, okay? And you create the rat mazes, and I help industry figure out the most cost-effective way through the rat maze, okay? I work principally for private industry behind closed doors with objective assessments. Uh, here's some of the public work uh, that I've done on uh, CO2 mitigation, and it's about, goes back 20 years. And I've done a lot of work in China. The Chinese like me because I'm honest. Uh, and uh, recently, something that's not public yet, uh, but I worked on the business round table uh, that'll be going public soon on the inputs for the CO2 capture for this large uh, business round table study of the impact of CO2 mitigation on US, eco uh, uh, US economy. Uh, there's rather interesting comments out there about clean coal, and I don't have time to talk about this other than I believe that NRDC's view of clean coal is don't call it that. They're more interested in low carbon energy, and I tend to agree with them. You don't want to look at any individual energy source and pick those out and bias them. You want fair and transparent objectives for low carbon fuels regardless of which type fuel. Uh, the basic problem is coal's a four-letter word, and that is everyone loves to hate coal as long as they have reliable, cheap electricity. And the fact is uh, electricity supplies 50% of our total electricity, and it's a reason why the U.S. has some of the cheapest electric rates in the world. Uh, because of those mostly paid off older coal plants. The, uh, this is a busy slide and I confused somebody already with this and I apologize, but just as an example, 50% of our electricity is from coal. If we tried to use these existing sources of electricity right now to meet that 50% coal, these are the type of numbers and magnitudes you're looking at. So what I meant by this slide was, let's say the wind turbines, they're now just 2%. If we wanted to increase those to 52%, that's the type of investment you'd have. And always re re remember with wind turbines the joke uh, that GE got into the wind turbine business because it helps their gas turbine sales so much. And that is, it's intermittent, unreliable source and has to be backed up with large amounts of gas turbines and natural gas use and hot spinning reserve and upgrading the grid system tremendously. But it's a very good technology. It's the most cost effective of the renewables beyond hydro and we have to support it and move it ahead, but we have to be realistic what it can and can't do. Here's an overall view of world energy use and what you see is that coal is going up faster than any other energy use, including renewables. Uh, here's just the CO2 worldwide history and projections, and again, because of the high carbon CO2 in coal, you see the enormous increases taking place in projections of worldwide CO2 emissions, principally due to coal. Now, if you look at the United States, and this is rather typical of the world uh, in an aggregate, what you see is there's two principal sources of CO2, transportation fleet with liquid fuels, power generation with coal. Uh, the U.S. is particularly embarrassing uh, because our coal plants are so old and relatively inefficient. 
and I tried to point this out in this slide, and, and that is, if you look at the U.S. fleet, uh, it's rather uh, embarrassing uh, that of that large fleet of, of 314 gigawatts, and I hope when I use the term gigawatts, people know what that means. That's 1,000 megawatts of electricity capacity. So I purposely put on this slide up here just so you know what gigawatts mean because I'm going to use that number a few times. Uh, and the U.S. fleet, only a third has flue gas de desulfurization. Most of them converted to low-sulfur western coals to avoid the retrofits of flue gas controls. 50% of our power, the utilization is about 73% and it's going up each year because electricity runs on marginal load dispatch which is principally based on the fuel cost, and coal is very cheap, so it's always dispatched before natural gas. Okay, so that's why it's going, it's going up. Uh, and then the efficiency is about 32% and going down. And the reason it's going down is because a retrofit SOX and NOx controls have parasitic power loads, and it reduces the output of the plant roughly by one to one and a half percent. Uh, the age of the plants on a megawatt weighted average uh, is over 35 years. And you can see in the orange in this slide that uh, most of the coal plants are over 20 years old and the megawatt weighted average is right in this area here. And we have a lot of very old cycling plants that are relatively inefficient and dirty, very old. Uh, I was just with... Professor Kaya this week here in town uh, giving a keynote at a big uh, greenhouse gas meeting and uh, the famous Kaya identity four choices for CO2 mitigation reducing world population reducing standard of living which by the way recessions are very good at reducing CO2 emissions you don't want to do that, but the fact is it is very good at, at doing that. You, of course, want to concentrate on energy intensity and carbon intensity, and you have to look at the, the two big ugly gorillas of the world on CO2 emissions. That's the United States and China. Uh, the United States, everyone loves to pick on them at 20% of the world's man-made CO2, but they forget the other part of that. We're also 20% of the world gross domestic product. Uh, and that second part's always left out. Uh, ch China has surpassed us because of their enormous economic growth and it's all in the back of coal. Uh, don't pick on the developing countries. Uh, you better look in a mirror first and see if you're an ugly American. And uh, most Americans are very ugly, okay? And a classic ugly American is confusing us with U.S. Uh, and, of course, you, you know it's an American in that car because of his poor English, he's overweight, he has a big gas-guzzling car, and even worse than that, he's probably driving a, on corn to ethanol. Uh, and, uh, and food for fuel is one of the most disgraceful things I've seen out of Washington in 25 years. Uh, the, uh, in a carbon-constrained world, if we have the stomach to do this, which I'm unclear we have the stomach to do this, but if we do have the stomach, you need all these options in this slide. Uh, and I'm only going to talk about the last option, uh, and in particular, there's a two-sided sword with that last option. One is coal is such a big part of the problem, uh, you need low emissions coal in relative to the CO2, and that requires 
capture and storage, but in addition, that's enabling technology once you develop these, that as carbon taxes would increase with time, your economics of bringing waste biomass into those plants to use for double reductions are tremendous. And, uh, and I'm always amazed with environmental groups that are anti-carbon uh, capture and storage. I don't know if they're that naive or they're that biased that they don't want to address the issue. But capture and storage is the key enabling technology for double reductions with uh, waste biomass. All you have to do is get it to the plant and blend it off with the coal. Very nice approach. Uh, Coal, a key conclusion from our private client work going back probably 10 years is that coal power is at the greatest risk of CO2 mitigation. You should go after the gas-guzzling SUVs, but everyone that drives one votes, so they're sacred cows. So you don't go after those, and you've seen that the last 10 years. Uh, you can't put a carbon tax on all of industry because what you do there is you just drive steel and cement manufacturers to China. The net effect is you literally increase the CO2 emissions and they bring those products into the country. That's a very competitive worldwide market. Government's very powerful, but the one thing government can't do as hard as they try is to make you stay in business and lose money. It's called bankruptcy. And so you have to be aware of that, that power plants are at risk because they can't move to China. That's why they're at risk, and we should pick on the power plants. There's a lot of potential. Uh, replacing, uh, reducing coal by the efficiency approaches, which are always the best, and uh, 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 conservation. Uh, coal replacement with other options, and then this capture and storage option is kind of the backstop and has this long-term potential for the double dip with the bi biomass as well. Now, Carbon capture and storage is what I'm going to talk about the rest of this talk, and I don't have time to go through this, but there's key three things. It's location, uh, where to put it in the ground, uh, it's large point sources, it's concentrating and compressing it and putting it in the ground. Uh, the U.S. is the world leader in capture and storage. We've been doing it for 25 years. Uh, we put about 25 million tons a year of CO2 into the ground in enhanced oil production to make oil. Now, uh, a very, what I'd call stupid thing you hear every once in a while, and this is a smart group, so I want to make sure you don't get caught in this silliness, is people say, well, but you're making oil, putting that CO2 in the ground. Well, if you didn't do that, you'd buy more from Iran, and they didn't put any more in the ground. And so don't get caught in that silliness of that. It makes you look very stupid, okay? And that is, the fact is, People drive SUVs, and they want fuel for those inefficient big SUVs. And if we put CO2 in the ground to make oil domestically, it'll be less we buy from Iran that doesn't put CO2 in the ground to produce theirs. Very important. Uh, there's a lot of opportunities for enhanced EOR, or enhanced oil recovery, in this country, putting a lot of CO2 in the ground. Uh, right now, we produce about a quarter million barrels per day of oil and doing this with that 35 million tons per year. Potentially, we could increase that to 25 or to 3 million barrels per day of increased domestic production and put about 9% of our total CO2 in the ground. So we need cooperation to get uh, some type of incentives and cooperation that we use anthropogenic CO2 to make 
all that CO2 that goes in the ground. And I should have mentioned the last slide, uh, the two big anthropogenic CO2s, which are about 10% of our CO2 being used now, is a gasification plant making SNG from coal, where they have a big pure CO2 vent. So the incremental cost of that CO2 recovery is incredibly low. And that's a, probably the largest, that's over 3 million uh, uh, tons per year of CO2, and then Exxon has a large natural gas plant that comes out of the ground with a lot of natural gas. Instead of putting that in the atmosphere, taking that out of the natural gas, they put that in pipelines as well. So, so these are the two very large anthropogenic CO2s uh, being used in EOR, by far the biggest in the world. Uh, there's a lot of ch ch challenges to uh, CO2. And uh, I have to go faster now to complete on time, but the key thing here is mineral rights and litigation. And that is uh, beyond EOR, if we put it in saline aquifers, we would turn every ambulance chasing lawyer into a CO2 injection chasing lawyer. Okay, it's, it's a minefield. Uh, in terms of the magnitude of the issue, it's, en it's enormous. Our CO2 right now in the atmosphere is going up two ppms per year. So if you tried to get a quarter of that or a half a ppm per year reduction from capture, these are the type of numbers you would see. Volumes of CO2 uh, would be, oops, the wrong button. Uh, the volumes of CO2 are enormous that uh, you would look at about the same as the oil use. And that's why you want to look at either for the biomass being blended in. Another key point here is it's the coal industry and the coal-based power generators that need this. The economics are well known and the, and the technology is well known. The issue is public acceptance and getting cooperation with the community that understands uh, ge uh, geologic storage, which are principal principally in the oil and gas industries. And the oil and gas industries and the coal power industries tend not to work together very well. So we have to work on that. The um, long term on the CO2 cost, uh, it's roughly 25% in the capture, 25% in the compression, and 25% in the injection. And so if you uh, get paid, uh, let's say 25% instead of 25% cost for that enhanced oil recovery, you'd literally drop the overall cost in half. So that EOR is the first step for 9% of the CO2 is, a, is an important step to reduce cost to get things going. Uh, a key thing is you want to look at these existing old coal plants to rebuild those so you avoid this capacity efficiency loss uh, in, in going after uh, capture and storage on coal. Uh, very quickly, the economics, uh, as of my latest economics I've done up to current do dollars with big cost escalations, you'd need about uh, $50 per ton carbon tax to reach the point where electricity with capture and electricity without capture would both be the same cost. So that's a break-even point where you start to consider it, uh, and that would be increasing electric cost uh, roughly four cents for the residentials, that would be about a 25% increase. For, for industrials, that would be like a 60-75% increase. So, uh, uh, and within that, you have to look at natural gas as the option, uh, and at $11 natural gas with that carbon tax, it's the same price of electricity. 
So that's what I call the triple point, where you have all three of those the same. Uh, very quickly, and I'm running out of time, but uh, I'll go through uh, the most commercial of the three on this pre, post, and oxy for capture is gasification. It's done commercially uh, in the industrial sector. If you look around the world, you'll see large amounts of gasification making ammonia, methanol, and, and hydrogen. All those have very large pure CO2 vents. Uh, the only gasification plants that don't have large CO2 cap capture tend to be the small amount of IGCC that's been built. All the other gasification plants actually have very large captures. Uh, we also have experience uh, in hydrogen-rich fuels and turbines, but they're not the state-of-the-art. They're lower firing temperatures. The attribute of this one is the flexibility of hydrogen as an, inter as an intermediate. You can do a lot of things you can't do with steam. Uh, Post-combustion is less developed. The biggest plant's only about 300 uh, tons per day. That's on natural gas. But the utilities like this because they look at this like a flue gas sulfurization. So it fits their, their understanding and profile of these chemical processes. Uh, Oxycombustion is the least developed, uh, but it has uh, some interesting potentials on certain retrofits, and there's a, a very aggressive movement here. A lot of utilities like this because it minimizes the chemical processing. They're generally very weak in chemical processing. Uh, advanced technologies, I don't have time to talk about these, but the key thing is uh, a chilled ammonia post-combustion process that Alstom is putting their money where their mouth is and trying to get this to uh, uh, commercial success quickly, and I admire what they're doing, and I, I hope they're successful. Uh, I was asked to look at uh, the storage side, which is not my expertise. I blatantly plagiarized the slide by Sally Benson, who used to be at Berkeley Lawrence Labs and now at Stanford with Lynn Orr and the GSEP, and you can study this yourself, but the potential to store CO2 is enormous. Uh, 200 years of our current uh, CO2 uh, uh, generation. The issue is you have to get the coal and oil and gas industry working together on this issue for, ge uh, for geologic storage. Uh, wrapping up very quickly here in just two more slides, because I'm running out of time, and that is um, NGOs dislike caption storage. It keeps coal alive, uh, and they look at the efficiency losses in doing this. And uh, both of those are pretty legitimate. Uh, I think the key thing here is what's even worse is if you take the very old coal plants and add retrofits to these old coal plants that are relatively inefficient to start with, you make them embarrassingly inefficient, embarrassingly inefficient. Plus, you're adding large investments to 40-year-old facilities, which is very dubious from a purely technical perspective uh, and long-term operation. Uh, my personal view, uh, and this is what I gave my keynote this week uh, at the Omni Hotel on, on uh, on capture uh, uh, and storage uh, was the fact you have to focus on the old U.S. coal plants that are relatively inefficient. In fact, China's coal plants right now are about 20% more efficient than the U.S. Coal, uh, coal plants are. So we're producing basically 20% more CO2 per megawatt than, Ch than China is. So from a CO2 perspective, we're a third world power generator. 
Uh, and so we have to concentrate on these old plants and rebuild them, not retrofit, but rebuild them, because when we do that, it's the only way you can do capture and storage where you don't see any reduction in capacity efficiency. Uh, at the same time, you end up with a relatively new plant and drop all the emissions very low. That's probably the most important thing I have to say today is that simple statement. Uh, the way f f forward, we have a lot of issues that have to be resolved. The liabilities, number one, demonstrations, and then I think we have to emphasize the fact the industrials have this technology that they've used uh, and they have the chemical process experience and get them involved. Uh, I think we need a simple, transparent laws like a carbon tax for the way forward on the long term. Until we do that, what you're doing is encouraging the old coal plants to be operated forever. And with the uncertainty right now, as a power generator, you want to maximize your CO2 emissions. So if we have a cap and trade like Europe, which is referred to as cap and charade, not to be confused with cap and trade, uh, the coal generators in Europe made out very well because they gave them all these credits and they passed them on and they had extra credits they didn't need. And so you want to maximize your CO2 while you wait for sound policy. And uh, so we have to resolve this in a fair and transparent way uh, to move ahead. So in summary, there is clean coal technology technology out there today. It's used in industrial sectors very successfully, about 30 gigawatts worldwide. A good example in this country is the Dakota gasification plant making SNG, recovering most of their CO2 in storage and capture for enhanced oil recovery. Uh, the issue is clean coal into the power sector that's very weak in chemical processing, uh, understanding and expertise. Uh, that they need those demos. The challenges are getting a fair and transparent, equitable laws, looking long term to encourage this use of CO2 reduction or abandoning coal if you want to do that. I don't care. But you need encouragement of the way ahead that's sound and transparent. Until you do that, you encourage life extension of these old, inefficient coal plants until policy is developed. That's very clear on a purely economic perspective. Uh, the, the path uh, ahead, I think, uh, by far, is to look at our oldest, most inefficient, dirtiest plants and rebuild. Don't retrofit, rebuild those. It's the only way that you can get the capture and storage where you haven't seen a large reduction in efficiency and capacity. At the same time, you've got all the emissions very low. So thank you for your time, and I hope I can answer some questions. Uh, just to join the Climate Project, my question is for Dale. Uh, given, especially the context of the current capital crisis, to what extent, given the immense size of investment that might be required for this, could you comment on, on the potential of, uh, essentially, uh, government direct involvement in this rebuild? I'm thinking via TVA, those types of uh, government-type enterprises to develop. Uh, you're right. The economic situation presence, and so we have to look at that first. And my thinking is uh, that what would be sound is getting a framework going out in the future with a rising carbon tax that maybe doesn't start till uh, 2015, that you can assure the power industry this is for real and is going to be constantly going up with this time. 
time, regardless of the administration in power in the future. And that gives them what they need to plan for the most cost-effective ways to redevelop, to reduce their CO2 emissions. Uh, but there's still a large capital cost involved to begin to rebuild uh, these old facilities. But I would argue that what we don't want to do is what I refer to as the Bethlehem Steel strategic business plan. And you can think that through yourself. All they cared about was life-extending old paid-off facilities until they went bankrupt. And it seems GM's been on the same strategic business plan as Bethlehem Steel. Well, I would. I think the tax is most transparent. Another way I had in the slides and didn't have time to talk about is have uh, the the discos uh, distributors of power go out for long-term purchase power contracts based on the CO2. Uh, per megawatt hour and let that open to wind turbines, solar, uh, natural gas, everybody, and let the best man win. Don't dictate technology. Let the market have a fair and transparent way to find the lowest cost winners. Seth Borenstein, Associated Press for Allen. Uh, as you said, um, geoengineering has been talked about for decades, but it started. Are you seeing, especially in the scientific community, that the talk is getting uh, more frequent and louder. Is there a way of quantifying that? And, and what do you think the reasons for that are? Since the uh, NASA meeting two years ago, a lot more people have been talking about it. I organized, I gave a talk at the American Meteorological Society meeting uh, a year ago in January, and a lot of people paid attention. I organized sessions at the American Geophysical Union meeting last December and next month also. And this time it will be a union session, which gets a lot more attention. We're going to have a press conference. The AGU is the biggest society of geoscientists on the planet, more than 50,000 people. We have a big meeting every, every fall in December. And so people, and this time, as compared to last year, there we have about twice as many people submitted papers based on the work that they're doing. And so. Uh, a number of groups around the world who are already doing climate modeling have done these experiments. They're sort of doing it instead of doing something else. They don't have additional funding to do it, but there is a lot of great interest in it uh, in the scientific community. And as far as and I, uh, I was at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in October, we had an annual every other year we have a meeting of the heads and chairs of atmospheric science departments and. They had a special afternoon symposium on geoengineering because it was a, the topic du jour. And I gave a talk, Mike McCracken gave a talk there. And so so it, is, it is becoming a lot more talked about. And people are starting to do research, but it's not well funded and there's no organized national program on it. As far as the technology to actually do it, I don't know anything, of, I don't know of anybody developing that. And the, re and the reason why you think it's starting to be more talked about? I think people are a lot more concerned about climate change, and so this is one of the potential solutions that people have proposed, and so climate change itself is getting a lot more attention. And I think a Nobel Prize winner, Paul Crutzen, writing a paper about it really got people's attention, even though there's Nobel Prize in atmospheric chemistry, and he wrote the paper as, oh, we, I'm really worried, I'm getting old, and nobody's solving, maybe we're gonna have to do it this way. And Tom Whitley at the National Center for Atmospheric Research published a paper in Science, and those two papers got people's attention too. 
Jeff Epping with Energis LLC. Question for Dale. Given the, the amount of power we produce from coal, and most of those plants are pulverized coal plants, is there a, a portion of the existing population that uh, retrofit would make more sense than uh, rebuilding, or can you comment color that? Uh, yes, that, that's very complex. That's a whole talk in itself, and that was my talk at this uh, GHG 9 meeting here in Washington this week. But uh, the, the issues uh, revolve around uh, space and age of the plant and efficiency of the plant and what existing emission controls they have. So if I have a newer supercritical coal plant with good emission controls existing on that plant and have room to put a retrofit uh, CO2 scrubber, which takes a lot of room, uh, or uh, convert that to oxy combustion, which may reduce that room a little bit, I would go with just those retrofits. If I'm looking at an older plant uh, and or lack of room, it tends to drive you toward the gasification where you can repower uh, and save space uh, within limited space. But uh, even rebuilding those with oxy fuels or post, the critical thing there is abandon a 40-year-old subcritical plant and put in a supercritical boiler or the gasification. A critical issue being room, water requirements, and chemical process capabilities. Hi, my name is Sam Bernstrom. I'm with the American Enterprise Institute, and I'm the co-director of a project over there. I have a couple questions for Alan. Alan and I have exchanged uh, critical words online before, but have never had the opportunity to speak face-to-face. I just want to see if maybe we can agree on a couple of points, and you could try to forget who I am and what I work for. <laughs> I think people might appreciate that the fact we have some common ground on this. The first is that, Alan, you characterize AI as supporting geoengineering as a substitute for mitigation. And I just want to be clear for everyone here that that's not the case. In fact, I've written explicitly that geoengineering, if it was ever used, would have to be a complement to, rather than a substitute for, a long-term transition to a zero-emissions economy. And I, I believe that, in fact, that the vast majority of leading scientists who are working on this subject would agree with that. You know, Tom Wigley, uh, uh, David Keith, Paul Crutzen, um, Ken Caldera, everyone, you know, almost all the leading scientists who work on this advocate geoengineering as uh, a, a stopgap, a safety measure if we are unable to make mitigation work. And at AI, I see geoengineering as something, as one component of a geoengineering uh, of a climate strategy that would have to include combination of mitigation, adaptation, and geoengineering if those other, if the first two components are not sufficient. And so I think we agree on that actually, uh, and I'd like, I'd like to hear your thoughts uh, uh, if that's the case. Well, uh, I don't think it's true that most people advocate geoengineering. Well, and, and actually, I'm sorry. I, 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 th I think it's true that people say, if we do it, then, then what you said is right. It should only be temporary and not a long-term solution. But a, a lot of people think a lot more work needs to be done before we even do it at all. Correct. Yes, and, and maybe if, if I could, I have just one, one more additional point that, that ties in nicely to that. Um, I think that some people who may not be familiar with geoengineering would come away from your presentation with a very negative perspective on it. You have a lot of concerns about that, and I understand that. My question to you would be, my, my perspective is that there is no debate right now about deploying any type of geoengineering technologies. Nobody advocates doing that. Certainly at AI we don't do that. We are 
many years, I would think, away from being you know, at a point where we could technologically do that and where we would have any level of scientific comfort. So the debate on geoengineering is not at all about deployment. But what I think we could agree about is that there is no argument at all in favor of ignorance about geoengineering science and technology. That given that it is uh, quite possible, I think we could say at the least, quite possible that there will be a need for geoengineering at some point in the future, and also quite, I think, personally, I think quite likely that some country other than the United States, some country that would be more vulnerable to the effects of warming, such as India, might want to pursue geoengineering. Given those facts, I think we can all agree that the more scientific knowledge that we have about this, the better position we will be, be, able, be able to make sound decisions about deployment when the time comes. And I'm just wondering if you would agree with that. I, I, I think so, you do. So, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but in 30 seconds, could you ask a question? That was a question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to find some ground here. I think uh, I'm not trying. I'm I, very no. careful of your injunction. I, I agree that we need to do more research, need to find out more about it. I, I agree with that. That's what I said. And uh, I was just wondering if, uh, if businesses would want to support some of that research. If that's a question to me, I couldn't answer it since I don't, I don't speak for businesses. Oh, you, I thought you spoke for American Enterprises. I, I, spoke for the, I speak for the American, actually I don't speak for the American Enterprise Institute. I speak for myself only. But AEI is a think tank. We're not a bunch of businesses. Uh, I can yeah. add a little bit to this. A private industry is spending their own money looking at this. I'm on the external advisory board to the CO2 capture project, which are made up of major worldwide energy companies. You can go to their website, see all about this group. It's uh, uh, CO2CaptureProject.org, uh, and uh, well, they're spending their own money looking at this. As I said, there are a lot of business opportunities in dealing with the problem of climate change in designing carbon capture and sequestration that can be sold around the world. Uh, and the, whether there's a business opportunity to do geoengineering is a lot more speculative. And so, uh, but the, the funding, what there is for research now comes from federal government sources. And I was just wondering if uh, like the Electric Power Research Institute or something like that would be interested in funding the science of it as well as the technology of it. I don't know the answer to that. But I agree, we do, do need to know a lot more about it before we even consider doing it. I'm Jeremy, Jeremy Richardson. I'm with the Pew Center on Global Climate Change. And I just have a couple of quick questions. Uh, can you tell me something about the technical nature of uh, the, the putting the sulfates in the, in the atmosphere? Like, how, um, how fast of an effect does it have on stabilizing temperatures? I mean, I guess it's a pretty quick uh, process, right? The, you know, you start reflecting the light and then the temperature stabilizes pretty quickly. But, for example, how fast would that affect sort of the climate on the planet? Uh, we often talk about geoengineering in the context of a stopgap stop measure. But if we were, for example, to see Greenland start to collapse, would putting the sulfates in the atmosphere even, uh, you know, be able to stop that in time? Well, I mean, once you see it happening, it's, you're, you're in a pretty dire situation, right? So yeah, uh, how fast does it happen? It takes on the order of a, a month for the sulfur gases to convert to the cloud of sulfuric acid droplets, and so that's very quickly. And that would start reflecting sunlight, and the planet would start to cool. So as far as temperature change, you would get a rapid response. And we know that because after a big volcanic eruption, the next year, a year, the planet's a lot cooler. And the Pinatubo 
erased all the warming from gr all the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere for a year or so. It got colder, rather. Uh, it, it got colder, but it took a while, it, uh, and then the aerosols went away, and it started getting warmer again. Now, as far as stopping Greenland from melting, that's a different question. melting. We don't understand well, how fast well we don't understand how fast it's melting, but what if, if it it is melting there are, the it, it, it's it's complicated because it depends on the rate of snowfall, it depends on how fast glaciers and icebergs break off the side, the internal lakes which melt and water flows out in the bottom. We can we can uh, cool, cool the temperature pretty quickly with geoengineering, but whether that will stop already ongoing melting processes and complex ice flow processes is something we just don't know. So the solution to stopping Greenland melting is to stop the warming now, not wait till we see much more evidence of it. And I wondered if you would just comment very briefly on the, the status of the CCS technologies and when they might be commercially available. Okay, well, uh, based on the question, I did a terrible job in my presentation because uh, the, the industrial gasifications are there today and it's being done at, at, uh, at the Great Plains gasification plant. They could literally put, uh, build more with better technologies that are commercial on those western locations where there's a market for the CO2 and greatly expand that CO2 use and use the existing uh, excess capacity in the pipelines to move that SNG uh, east and just put natural gas combined cycles in place of these old coal plants. So it can be done today. Uh, the issue is uh, the, the uh, competitiveness of that, which my calculations would be about $12 per million BTU gas. Uh, that could be done. Now the post and oxy approaches and putting an IGCC with post capture, you put it all in one place in a traditional power plant, that's the one that needs all those demonstrations. And I would estimate those uh, are a minimum of 15, if not 25 years away. Um, I'm going to ask everybody, because there's a lot of questions, to uh, think about sharpening your question by the time you get up here and the answers as well. Hi, Steve Cook with BNA. Um, three questions for Mr. Sembeck. Um, is there any interest or feasibility in using pyrolysis to extract some of the energy from coal and then uh, perhaps uh, applying the remaining carbon to the soil or other uses? And two, um, do you, uh, you criticize the uh, reallocation of allowances. Does that mean you support a, an auction and should the proceeds from the auction be plowed back into energy research? Um, and uh, I forgot what the third question was. <laughs> okay, well, the first two, um, could you repeat the first one I started thinking about this? Uh, second using one. pyrolysis. Okay, pyrolysis is, um, is very uh, difficult for that to be cost effective because pyrolysis of coal would give you only about a third energy and two-thirds in the carbon. And so doing that much mining of coal and putting two-thirds of the energy back in the ground, uh, I don't think the economics would work out real well. But pyrolysis approaches for biomass uh, are very interesting as a way to increase the energy content into something that's more storable and movable uh, uh, and making chars or 
uh, pyrolysis to chars, pyrolysis to a slurry of oil char as a way to upgrade uh, biomass so you can more effectively move it to central facilities to process uh, is a much better approach uh, for pyrolysis. The second being I don't want, I wouldn't think all the money should go to research. Uh, our research situation in the United States isn't very good in terms of you look at the money we spend, what we're getting out of it, I don't see a lot of bang for the buck. I would want that money, part of it going to research, but part of it going to fair and transparent uh, uh, feedbacks of the money collected into the people that put their money where their mouth is to meet low carbon electricity and let the best man win. Uh, and my last question was, um, do you think that a uh, cap-and-trade system would result in that North Dakota plant capturing the CO2 and, uh, and burying it? Uh, I think you could see more of those type plants developed that could make SNG out west where there's a, a readily place to put the CO2 in the ground with a value uh, and expand uh, the EOR there to whatever you could, which again is only about maybe 9% of the total man-made CO2 emissions in this country. But that's a situation that could move quickly if the mechanisms are in place to let them compete. I think the traditional coal industry does not want to let outsiders compete there, and those would be outsiders. No, no one in Washington wants to even <laughs> a playing field. <laughs> I'm Avi Gopsi. I'm a AAA Science and Technology Policy Fellow in Energy, Environment, Agriculture, and Natural Resources. I have one question for each presenter. Uh, for Alan, I was wondering if you had considered uh, addressing the history of political upheaval resulting from modified precipitation due to um, uh, in, in environmental uh, disruptions. Uh, there, was, there was a paper in Science that came out in the last issue that talked about uh, or highly correlated the, uh, the destruction of centuries-long uh, Chinese dynasties with weak precipitation patterns from, uh, that correlated to weak solar uh, cycles. And it seems as though the geoengineering uh, that's being proposed would be highly analogous to this. That's, uh, that's really not my area of research in, in looking at historical disruption from climate disruption, but I know there's a whole lot of people that study that. And I know that the US military issued a report a year or two ago saying that climate change was the greatest threat to our national security. And that report was released. And so climate change in general, which disrupts whether it's warming from current global warming or whether it's disruption of the water supplies from geoengineering, any sort of large climate disruption has a potential to produce mass migration. You know, when I was a, a, a congressional science fellow here 22 years ago, I was sitting in one of these hearing rooms and there was a friend of mine up testifying who was a scientist and he said, picture the future. There's drought, there's high temperatures, and there are mass migrations across the United States border. People coming, uh, leaving this desolate area, going to a place that's lush and green and where you can actually grow crops. He says, but I'm not talking about the Mexican border, I'm talking about the Canadian border, and it's Americans going to Canada. And so uh, that was just a, a, I remember that distinctly, for, and, and that threat hasn't, hasn't gone away. And so uh, disruption to people 
could really produce a huge disruption in the political system. That's about all I know. And for Dale, um, ma many of the statistics that you uh, uh, displayed seem to be uh, hi highly idealistic for carbon capture technologies and highly pessimistic for some of the renewable technologies. The 30% uh, the load capacity or capacity factor for wind uh, is, is low, uh, especially as the, the wind industry increases and, and improves their designs, their, their, their capacity factors are going up. And the, the, the issue with uh, the intermittency can be addressed by uh, building out transmission that averages out uh, peaks and valleys. And uh, if I gave that impression, I did a, a terrible job. We need all the options, uh, including the aerosols. Uh, if we're serious about this issue, you need every arrow in your quiver on these. Now, from a carbon capture perspective, uh, that's a potentially a big stopgap arrow, potentially. But uh, so, in terms of bio, uh, in terms of wind turbines, I think if you look at the statistics that are published, uh, you're not correct on those annual load factors based on the aggregate load divided uh, by the kilowatt hours per year. Now the problem you get into is when the subsidies are high, you get a big surge in new capacity. So you have to look at the years that you're not getting a surge in new capacity when those subsidies are in and out. And what you'll see the years when there's no subsidies, when you're not having a growth, you're not seeing these higher percentages that you're saying. But uh, there's a lot of work going on improving those. The problem you get into is the best sites are consumed first. And, and so there's a lot of work done to find the best sites. Uh, in terms of storage of electrons, that's a major problem. The cheapest way to store electrons is gas turbines to back them up. I, I respectfully disagree. Okay. Well, economics beats technology every time. My name is Dan Kellogg. I'm a mechanical engineer. I do a lot of my own private research, and I have a question for Dale. In terms of the coal power plant rebuilding, I, I, I like your, that that's, seems like a good idea to me. Uh, when rebuilding the plant, how about the uh, combined heat and, and power, where you, where you utilize the, uh, the, the waste heat? And the reason why I mention that is it has to do with, with water. Uh, power plants Absolutely. use a tremendous amount of water. You're dead on. Okay, dead on. And, and just real quick, Georgia, the southeast, 75% of the water requirements of the household is to generate power. Only 25 is potable, portable water that comes to them. If we're going to have uh, climate change or solutions to climate change, and anything we do is going to create water problems, we're, we're guaranteed that. We're going to have to develop our water infrastructure. But the question I have is, if we reduce if we rebuild these plants and we utilize that waste heat, increase the efficiency, we also enable the power plant to, to run during a drought, a climate-induced drought, and would that be part of the scheme? Oh, well, that's the most important part of the scheme, and that is, head of my list is always efficiency and conservation. The thing you don't want are 25% efficient power plants, you don't want 32%, you don't want even super critical at 40%, you want cogeneration at somewhere between 70 and 90%, okay, plus the, the water reduction of not having the cooling power, which is amazing. Now, within that, you get into vicious politics quickly, right. and that is a regulated utility's worst nightmare, their worst nightmare is baseload 
cogeneration because it's too clean, it's way too efficient, and worst of all, it's baseload generation by somebody else, and that's the cash cow that pays the bills or baseload power generation. There's enormous potential in cogen for uh, heavy oil stimulation production in Canada. Uh, Alberta has increased their cogeneration from 8 to 25% in less than 10 years. Less than 10 years. One last question. I like the theme of working together, everybody talking, because if you can use that waste heat to distill ethanol, even though ethanol is not the best solution, you take most of the energy penalty out, and I would favor existing power plants doing that. Well, you better look at the fuel you use to, to do that cogen. Uh, if you're using coal to do that cogen like Archer Daniel Midlands does, their CO2 emissions are very high. <laughs> it's just a good marriage as well. Okay. Thank you very much. David Green, National Weather Service. Uh, question for Alan. Uh, you talked about, uh, I think the geoengineering drives a lot of additional questions, and so I encourage this activity. But you talked about research and you talked about modeling scenarios, and I wondered what, to move this forward or make decisions here, what's needed in terms of observations and measurements, and who needs to come together to provide that additional data and information you'll need to uh, drive policy or drive more research decisions? So the focus was about additional observations or measurements to make decisions in this area? Well, I could spend a long time talking about additional observations and measurements we need to understand the climate system on the general problem of climate change. Uh, and, but... Specifically about your approach. But specifically for geoengineering, uh, I, I can't think that we need a... Uh, in general, we need a better observation system for stratospheric aerosols. If there was a big eruption today, there used to be a wonderful satellite called SAGE-2 that could measure it. We don't have that anymore. We don't have uh, good enough based on satellites and also based on uh, uh, ground to measure stratospheric aerosols. For doing specific experiments, we need a good observational system to see what happens when we inject the aerosols. I mean, there's another. clouds that will make them brighter and reflect more sunlight. And it's easy to think of modeling experiments to study that, but if you did it on, a, on that scale, you need to be able to observe what's happening on that, on that scale. So did you have something in mind, a particular obser observing system that we need anyway? Or? Well, it's easy to talk about research, but the, in order to analyze whether this approach or these questions you're asking will have an effect, and I like the comments you made about deciding whether we're talking about absolute changes or rates of change. That points to me to saying we need to be able to, and, and that volcanoes are occurring, that we need to ask the questions, are, are we monitoring the environment, whether it's the atmosphere or the oceans, in a way that will start to guide us towards whether this approach is, is viable, or if we start looking at things, is it, is it driving the rates of change uh, in a way that is the way we, we desire? So, I was wondering whether I, I, we really have the observations and the data, whether it's atmospheric as well as ocean, in place to start going down and considering this path. The, I think combined with surface observations, buoys, the Argo system, the, the, the balloons and, and new satellite systems like COSMIC, we have a pretty good observing system already for the atmosphere and the oceans. To do one that's robust, the viewpoint of climatologists, we want long-term systems that don't change their technology 
and we don't have that, and we need that anyway. But I think to tell whether the planet's warmer, there's no, there's no controversy now that we've had global warming. We have a good enough observation system to, to say that, even though critics were saying a decade or two decades ago, you can't observe the global warming. It's all at, at National Airport, and you're fooled by the city. Uh, and so I think we have a good enough system to measure that. We have a good enough system to measure El Ninos now. Uh, we don't have a very good system to measure stratospheric aerosols, but the last big eruption was 1991, and there haven't been any needs for it. And so I, try, I, I tried to put in a LIDAR system, didn't get funded. So there, we do need a more robust system. But for something that happens every once in a while, or uh, maybe never, if we're not going to do geoengineering, it's hard to argue to spend money on that rather than something else. Uh, hi, my name is Billy Bear from George Washington University, and I have a question for Alan. Um, you mentioned commercial controls, the expense of geoengineering, the promotion of private research of geoengineering by businesses, and along with the current inability of implementing geoengineering. And with that in mind, how do you feel about John Martin's iron hypothesis and recent actions of corporations such as Planktos and Climos um, on implementing ocean iron fertilization as a means of geoengineering? Uh, so he's talking about putting iron into the ocean in places to make the plankton grow more, and then they suck the CO2 out and presumably fall to the bottom of the ocean and remove CO2. There are a couple of companies that went broke after a paper was published in Science by a lot of experts saying we don't know if it would work, and there's another company, Climos, uh, which uh, uh, is run by uh, a former uh, NSF uh, Staffer and her son, and uh, they're trying to get people to give them money to take CO2 out so that you can drive your or fly an airplane. Buying indulgences. But there's another part of it is there are some of the schemes for solving the problem actually give credit for carbon capture, uh, build it. From my point of view, we don't know how to do carbon capture biologically. Planting trees, for example, takes CO2 out, but also makes the surface darker, and more sunlight, and warmer. So we can't count people for maintaining the trees for a long period of time. And so we don't even know whether that's a good solution. Ocean iron fertilization is even worse because you can, in places which are iron poor, you can see a bloom. But then what happens to the little bugs? How do you follow them? Do they, uh, do they really die and fall to the bottom? Or do they fall down a little bit and then decay anaerobically and bubble up methane back to the atmosphere, which is a much stronger greenhouse gas than CO2? Or does it affect the ocean uh, ecosystem when you do things like that? A lot of research needs to be done to be able to track it when you do it, and we just don't know. We don't know. I, I don't think it's it's uh, valid for anybody right now to claim that they have a solution. We still need a lot more research on that. Let me add, you need to mown your fertilizer for this too. The nutrients will limit your algae plume. So you're adding a lot of ammonia fertilizer on these algae plumes, I believe. And so the verification of the whole cycle, let alone the side effects, are, are, uh, are going to be a long time in developing. Just one more question. Um, you mentioned the effects of like possibly cutting off sulfate particles in the air and like the drastic warming that may cause. Is there a way to wean off that 
along with mitigation through like carbon capture and sequestration in order to reach like an equilibrium point over time, like a slow well, breakdown of Tom Whitley proposed a gradual reduction of sulfate to sort of just balance the increased warming from CO2 to keep the temperature constant. And then once we do better mitigation and gradually reducing the emissions so you could control the climate. Now, if you could control other things at the same time and you could control the aerosols, you could probably keep the climate at a constant temperature. My concern was that if all of a sudden uh, the society decides we don't want to spend money on this or we discover some danger or some other danger and we just stop it precipitously and we're, it's like flying around in a helicopter and all of a sudden there's a flood and you have to keep the helicopter going but if, if uh, you run out of fuel then it just crashes and so it could be uh, if we base our solution on these very complex technologies, there can be accidents and unknowns, and it can be worse than doing nothing. And we don't know enough to, to do it, that, that, to implement it right now. And that, that's just one of the concerns. Thank you. Um, this will be the last three questions. And we will need to start wrapping up. Only because we got something behind us and we've been sort of urged. Yeah. So, question. Hi, I'm Sarah from CNS News. Um, I don't know if you already talked about this, but the cost of um, injecting the particles into the air or the clean coal, could you just talk in general terms of the cost to the taxpayers? Well, nobody knows what a system would cost, but there have been estimates. There was a National Academy of Science study and other estimates. It's, it would be on the order of 10 or $100 billion a year to sort of counteract the warming that's going on. But those are really rough numbers. But that's the magnitude that people have talked about. Did you say 10 or 100? Uh, uh, payloads for outer space, which is much worse, that's a million do dollars per kilogram of of payload, so but so this would be less though. Okay. Yeah, so you're putting it up in the stratosphere. And we're talking about injecting the particles. We're talking about putting gases in sulfur dioxide or H2S, which then react with water and form form the cloud. And we know that that happens because that's what happens after volcanic eruptions. How to get the right the cloud with the right properties is uh, not well known. People have suggested lots of other types of particles. Put in black carbon particles, which are smaller. You don't have to put as much in. They absorb a lot of sunlight. Of course, they fall out and make the, the snow black, and then it absorbs more sunlight and melts it. So people have talked about special engineered particles that have all the wonderful properties you want and none of the bad properties, but uh, nobody's ever done it. So those are speculations about other engineered prop particles, which may be cheaper and better, but a lot of research needs to be done to see whether such things exist. Uh, what are the chances of injecting these particles into the atmosphere, which we've never done before, and it kind of blowing back on us and turning out wrong? What are the dangers to the environment if it didn't go as planned? I mean, well, I, I discussed the ones that I and other people have thought about, but I had a list there of unexpected consequences. So there are things that we don't know. We don't know what we don't know. So, indeed, that's a concern. Okay. Is that slide available to us? Yeah, go to my homepage and uh, you can download the presentation. Yeah. You're going to make all the slides. Are there any questions? Yeah. Uh, I'm 
Uh, Mike McCracken from the Climate Institute. A Alan, I guess I'm still a little bit concerned about the, the overall tone uh, as it came out. I mean, first, I think everyone agrees you have to do mitigation. Uh, I think everyone agrees you wouldn't do this unless you really had to. I mean, and so the consequences that you should be judging against are the ones you can alleviate. So we're going to have global warming. I mean, there's a tremendous inertia to that. And so the question is about alleviating it. Now, there was a comment that people aren't thinking about it in the near term. There are people thinking about it in the near term because the Arctic is melting very fast, and it's not just an effect on the Arctic. That affects weather down here. It affects what happens around the world and the total amount of warming. Um, so I, I guess I'd say, uh, you know, we really need to be going ahead with the research program with which you agree that, that we should do. Um, I would also say that in your conclusions, you talk about geoengineering generally, where you're really talking about one approach of many possible approaches. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's really important not to sort of say generally about the field that it all has all of the 20 problems that you're, you're suggesting. Yeah, I, tr I tried well, to. Finally, I'd, I'd say that um, we really haven't done any engineering on this so far. It's really what was done is a scientific sensitivity study about if you put a very large amount in fast. There's been no looking at gradually putting it in, putting it in some seasons than others, putting it in some places than others, trying to avoid some of the adverse consequences about potentially diminishing the monsoon or other kinds of things. So that we have a really long way to go. Um, the, the problem is that the impacts that we're having from global warming are so very strong that there's just, uh, I think, and happening more rapidly than we've thought, and IPCC's each assessment gets more serious, um, that there is, I think, a really urgent need to take a look at it and be open-minded about it at, at, at this moment. Okay, well, uh, I, I agree with, with all of that. Uh, I'll just say two things. Uh, one is that uh, you say everybody agrees that mitigate, we have to do mitigation. Well, I don't know if that's true. Uh, uh, Geoengineers. Yeah, but it's not, it's not being done. And it's not being done, and the, the White House has stood in the way for the last eight years, and things are going to change quite a bit with Henry Waxman's uh, election to the chair of his committee and with President Obama. Things are going to change. be a lot more mitigation uh, work in the future. So I don't want anything that takes away from that, but I agree we have to do the research. Uh, and you said there nobody's doing it. We're also doing experiments right now. The first experiment we did was just put in three megatons per year continuously in the Arctic. Now we're doing it just in the spring and the summer to see whether, because it doesn't, you don't have to have aerosols in the winter, there's no sunlight to reflect. So if we put a lot less in only in the summer, maybe we could do some cooling and do it at a time when before it can affect the uh, Asian monsoon. And so we're doing those experiments now with our model to see is there a better strategy, a more detailed strategy of trying to have the good effects, not the bad effects. And I'm sure other people are working on that too. Art Schauer from the National Research Council. You touched on part of what I was going to ask in the response to the first person before uh, Mike Kraken, but um, we've heard a lot about SO2 and not a lot about other ideas. Is that because they've been explored and rejected, or is there just a need for a larger research program looking at other kinds of atmospheric modification that might be on the table? Uh, it's because nobody has really looked at it. We need more, more research in it. Uh, Nature has done the experiment with sulfur, 
And so we know what volcanic eruptions do, and so that points the way to, and we know how to model that because we've done it for volcanic eruptions, and so that was the first one, and it was easy, and we know that when it comes out, it's not so terrible. And so uh, there are other ideas. Uh, Edward Teller and his group came up with them. Other people have come up with them. Science fiction writers come up with them who don't really understand the atmosphere, but they still come up with them. And so uh, thinking of one person in particular, and so, uh, uh, we need to explore all of those and do the engineering, but also do the scientific calculation of what would be the effects of these particles. Could we generate them and what would the, be the consequence? We need a lot more work looking at a much broader range of stratospheric, but also other types of geoengineering. Well, um, I want to thank everybody for coming, but I want to make one comment in the end here. Um, I should have said it at the outset. Um, I regarded today's presentations as the beginning of a longer discussion. I think Mike McCracken made a good point. Um, we really need to peel back some layers here. And geoengineering, we looked at two pieces of a much larger panoply of ideas that are on the table. And we'll get to those, and we'll even perhaps revisit some of this. But we wanted to start the discussion, and I think this was a good way to start it. And we'll take it from here. Um, anyway. Thank you for coming. Um, I can't think of anything else. Thank you.